This episode is brought to you by the Copywriter Club in Real Life, our live event in San Diego, March 12th through 14th, 2020. Get your tickets now at thecopywriterclub.com forward slash T-C-C-I-R-L. What if you could hang out with seriously talented copywriters and other experts, ask them about their successes and failures, their work processes and their habits, then steal an idea or two to inspire your own work? That's what Rob and I do every week at the Copywriter Club podcast. You're invited to join the club for episode 168 as we chat with media personality and radio podcast producer, Glenn Washington, about what it takes to tell a great story, the power of podcasting to connect with an audience, what most podcasters, including us, should be doing differently, and what it means to be a fish shaker, mountain hollerer, and foot stomper. So, Glenn, welcome. Thank you for having me. All right. So, Glenn, Glenn knows because I've already emailed him and said I'm a super fan. Um, so, I have listened to every episode of Spooked, all three seasons of Spooked. So, this is just a delight to be able to talk to you about what happens behind the scenes and get to know more about you. So, and I want to add, I've, I've listened to all of the episodes of the Heaven's Gate podcast, as well as several of the uh, spooked episodes. So, so we're both super yeah, fans. We're, we're big fans of, of what you've done, Glenn. Well, I'm so glad you dug it. Um, and I appreciate you having me on the show today. And I hope, uh, I'm sorry, we had a bit of a flood here. So I'm in a weird setting. So I'm hoping the sound works for you right now. Yeah, it's working great. It sounds really good. All right, Glenn. So let's start with your story. How did you end up as a storyteller? podcaster, executive producer, um, and host of Snap Judgment and my favorite podcast, Spooked? Well, it was uh, was not by design. This is, a, um, it, this is something that kind of a, a, an organic unfolding of a lot of different things. But to make a long story shorter, um, I have been a public media head for a long time and, um, and, and started listening to various shows on the podcast format early on, like um, in like maybe uh, 2006, seven, eight, when I was listening to podcasts um, before they became, you know, uh, you know, what they, what people think of them are today. And I heard a, an ad for something called the public radio talent quest. It was Ira Glass and Terry Gross and I believe a few other people that were saying, you know, if you do have something called hostiness, you think you can do this, uh, this uh, public radio thing. And the truth of the matter was, I just wanted to preserve my right to complain. The, um, I, I love public radio, but I thought that a lot of different things that happened were, um, they, they weren't necessarily getting at the communities that I knew anything about properly. And uh, for example, I remember um, listening to someone and they were talking to a uh, someone who was uh, an African-American person, um, uh, lower socioeconomic status, and they asked him a question. And when he answered the question, they translated what he said and um, into public radio speak. And as if the listeners couldn't understand the words coming out of this man's mouth. And I thought it was outrageous. And so I, you know, that was the reason why I entered the contest. And, um, 
sent in my little entry. You just had to send in a little two-minute entry of some sort. I sent it in and forgot about it. And um, about three months later, I got a phone call. I was eating some at a Chinese restaurant in Berkeley. I got a phone call saying I was one of 10 finalists nationwide. And, you know, I thought that uh, I thought I knew better. I thought there was my buddy Mark playing a joke. So I hung up the phone. And uh, but uh, it turns out they, they were serious. And that's kind of how I got started in public radio. So, Glenn, tell me, like, what was the reaction, you know, as you told your friends, your family, hey, I'm going to do this, you know, as a career, uh, you know, because I, I think a lot of people look at this and say, yeah, if you're Tim Ferriss or if you're Ira Glass, maybe you can make a living as a podcaster. But uh, I can't imagine. Well, I do imagine it's probably a lot like telling your family, hey, I'm going to be a poet, you know, and <laughs> can you support me for life? So what was the reaction that you got from everyone? Initially, that's exactly right. Um, I, you know, I had a. I had a a good career. I've I've been a, a nonprofit director. I was uh, I was uh, running a center at the University of Berkeley in the business school, and um, you know I you know I was I thought I was I was doing my thing, and when I decided to leave, I remember my my father came up, and he was helping me on a Saturday uh, move some stuff out of my office to bring it back to the house, which is where I was going to be working for a while. And he was like, son, you know, what are you doing? You got yourself a nice office here. This is what you take it. What are you doing? What are you doing? This is making kind of sense. And um, yeah, I mean, that that just that just goes with the with the whole territory. It doesn't make a lot of sense. It makes a lot more sense now. But back then, people didn't really know what a podcast was. Um, I think. Serial and the um, This American Life team for popularizing it in the popular imagination. What this thing was, but um, yeah, it was it was you, you were jumping off into uh, the great unknown. So, what helped Snap Judgment take off so quickly and become so successful um, really fast? What were some of those factors that contributed to that? Well, I don't know that it really did become really successful really fast. I know that I remember reading an article in the uh, in the some LA paper about Snap Judgment being an overnight success, and we laughed and laughed at that because um, so much work, so much effort, so much time went into making the show, and this and this and this build was actually fairly slow. Um, we. We um, I can tell you some of the what, what went into it, but um, you know we we, we I find when I finally was able to launch the show, I was so, I was so happy. Um, we got a little bit of a grant. Um, and at the time it was a it was a it was a big grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. We we're going to launch the show, but the um in at the and podcasting was sort of secondary, um at least in their minds. So our minds it was always primary. But um, we were, but uh, we had to. We wanted to be on public radio stations, and so we called up the public radio distributors. Um, NPR at the time, um, they said no. PR, PRI, um, who was distributing This American Life, they said no. And American Public Media, they distributed um, at the time was Garrison Keeler, and they said no. And so we got this show, but we don't have any distribution. Um, 
And so we ended up, I ended up calling all of them back saying that the other ones were interested and um, I was going to have to make a quick decision, but I want to give Ma one more chance. And, um, and NPR was the first one to bite. And we got to be distributed by NPR, which was great for us because it added a certain type of legitimacy to what we were doing. But it wasn't like they were going to put us on station. Every single station in America makes their own decisions about their programming schedule. And NPR certainly wasn't pushing SNAP. It was something that we had to do ourselves. And um, and that meant that the podcast became extremely important because what would happen would be we would uh, kind of target an area, try to get people to listen to the podcast, and they'd go and they'd listen and they well they and then ask their 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 uh, local stations, why aren't you covering this show? Why aren't you playing this show? We call them and say, hey, uh, would you play Snap Judgment? They'd say no. But when a group of listeners would call, that's when um, things started to change. And it was estimated that we'd be on like maybe 20 stations by the end of year one, and we end up being on about 100. And then, um, you know, a similar estimate for, for year two, and we end up being on about, about 200. And that's when NPR actually started paying attention to us and thank God we were able to make our mistakes for that two-year period without a whole lot of sort of uh, oversight. It was, you know, the show started on um, on my kitchen table, and we had to make, you know, cuts in and out. Uh, and sometimes in my partner Mark's uh, spare room, and and he lives next to uh, he lived next to the UPS, and we had to make uh, cuts in and out of you know, look down the street both ways and see if there was a truck coming and then make a recording and then hope that, you know, if there was a truck sound, it wasn't too, too loud in the background of the, of the recording. That's kind of, that's literally how the first season was made. Um, and, uh, so I say all that to say that it was not, <laughs> uh, we weren't in, um, in some big, uh, uh, expansive studio somewhere and I think it really worked to our benefit to be able to make our own mistakes, figure out for ourselves what the show sounded like. And then later on, when um, when we had gotten a little bit of traction and we felt like we knew what we were doing, um, then we could when when, uh, when they wanted us to change it, we had a little bit more gumption to say, no, we think we know we're going to push back on you now. Yeah, I, I love hearing you talk about the hustle and what it took to get started because when you listen to the podcast today, it's you know, really well produced and it, it flows. You know, there there are no truck sounds in the back, uh, you know, like like you described. So it's fun to hear that not everybody starts at the top and uh, and, it, and it takes a little bit of a climb. Oh yeah, I mean even I mean uh, we were hoping even then I would think we were we really want to to focus on the sound and I hope that it was it was produced as well as we could do it I'll tell you I'll say this though it was funny um I was I was laughing a little while ago um so I got a question online and someone said you know what what program do you use to produce snap judgment and now we use like logic and and um, Pro Tools, which are professional sound audio equipment. But the truth of the matter is, um, we made the first season on the sound program that comes installed in everybody's Mac. Um, uh, iMusic. GarageBand? Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. And, and um, we, we, we were, this was, we, we were doing, you know, national broadcast on just 
regular stuff that you everyone has in their computer right now. Um, and sometimes we still do. If we're in a scramble or something like that, you know, um, you, I, I, we want to make it sound as good as we can, but sometimes you have to make do with what you have. Yeah. One of the things I love about your podcasts, Glenn, is the the focus on stories. Uh, you know, even the Heaven's Gate, you know, it's all uh, serialized, but it's one really fascinating story. I was listening to several episodes of Spooked a couple of months ago when Kira told me about it. And, uh, you know, I have those moments where the hairs on the back of my neck stand up because the story is so compelling. We tell us a little bit about your approach to stories. What makes a good story? And how do you know when you've got a story that you've got to tell? You know, I've heard, I grew up, uh, as, as it kind of came out in the Heaven Gate podcast, I grew up in a real story-bound community. I grew up in this crazy religious cult. And, um, you know, when I look back on it in retrospect, you know, when you, uh, we, there's so many ridiculous things and, and, you know, just incredible things happened during that time period growing up. Um, and, but it was all driven by story. It was all driven by a shared story, by a belief um, that our founder could talk to God and that he had a special truth that only the chosen people that was us could understand. And that Jesus was going to come any minute. And um, we had to be on our toes. Now, some people slept wearing their shoes so they could be ready to get up if Jesus came in the middle of the night. And when I walked away from all that in my late teens, because I was a true believer as a child, when I walked away from that, I thought, what a waste, what a tragedy, what, a, what craziness. That was, I, I would have misspent youth. But later on, I came to understand that I did get something from that insanity. And it was an appreciation of story and how powerful story is and how story can make you do amazing things. Um, when you first started Stamp Judgment, I remember I was listening to Crossfire watching Crossfire on television and you have two idiots and they're, and they're shouting at each other about some political thing. And no one in the history of time has ever changed their mind by watching that show. Never, ever happened. But people change their minds all the time um, from narrative, from listening to this happened to me. Look, hey, you know, I don't have anything to sell you, but this is my story. And I just, it, the the whole thing it just it occurred to me that the power of narrative is an amazing thing, and I wanted to take back that power for something positive because it had been used as a cudgel and as a, and, and was weaponized against the community I grew up in, and I wanted to see if I could use it in a different way. So, as storytellers, you know, for copywriters listening. Um, it's part of our job, and that's what we use to persuade people to buy whatever products, services. How can we become better storytellers? Are, are there is there a process you go through, or certain steps you follow, or is it just something organic in what you do? I think there's a lot of steps you can go through, and I think everyone, you know, you want to make the stories um, authentic to who you are. Um, and I think one of the big things that I know I go through is simplify, simplify, simplify. You've heard that old yarn about 
I forget who said it, but I uh, I would have written you a shorter letter, but I didn't have enough time. Yeah, maybe that was Mark Twain. Maybe uh, some, somebody said that. Um, but it's really true that you want um, that the that the editing process is a real process, and it's an iter the, the iteration and the iter- iterative nature of this is really intense. Now, we I do and I get up on. And and, and uh, on, the, on the top of a snap judgment show, I wanted to sound like, you know, this is just kind of tumbling out of my out of my mouth right now. But the truth of the matter is, we've gone through iteration after iteration, edit after edit. These stories start on the page before they come out of my mouth. Or, and and the same thing with the with the Purdue stories themselves. This these um, you know hours and uh, a, a part of a ten hour interview. Might be, might be, might be a ten-hour interview. Might be part of a ten-minute story. Um, we it just take. I think that um, I, I think that people. I hope that that effort by this army of production and producers is invisible, but for professionals, they have to know that this doesn't just happen um, by accident. And it doesn't happen easily. Uh, I love it when we tell us we've worked with such, with this, a person who's had an experience. You know, most of the people on Snap Judgment are, especially the the regular production, they're not storytellers. They're they're people who've lived an amazing thing, and we're trying to extract that story and find a way to tell that story, and and, and make them comfortable telling a story. But oftentimes they'll say, you know, I can't. When they hear the final piece, it's like. Boy, I can't believe I told the story like that. That's that's, that's great, and I'm like, well, you didn't. <laughs> it, we've had to work that, but I I like I love that it feels authentic to the person who's listening back to themselves. I I think that's 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 when we we can say, oh, at least in that we've succeeded. Um, but how do you tell a better story? I think that you it's practice, and it's practice, and it's like making sure that the, that opening line um, grabs a hold of someone. What you're trying to do, what we're trying to do at least, with our storytelling is put you in someone else's experience, put you in someone else's shoes, let's wear someone else's skin for a while. The whole idea is to, at the end, have a type of empathy created in the storytelling. So, and Because just personally, I think that a lot of the issues that we're having right now stem from people not appreciating what it's like to be someone else and not, and empathy is just sorely lacking in our national dialogue. And so this show at its core is about empathy. What's it like to be that other person? Um, and it, we can do it in a, you know, in a non-political way because now, someone just said, "Look, this is what this is what happened to me. This is what happened to me. I'm not trying to study this. This is just this is my tale, um, and that's that. And that too, that ends up being the 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 best sort of open line for our spinoff podcast, Spooked. Spooked started as kind of a, you know, we wanted to take it was a, it was a Halloween episode of Snap Judgment, you know, and let's let's the idea was let's treat these." Uh, Halloween stories that people have. Everyone's got one of these things, these supernatural, I touch the darkness stories. Let's treat it with the same respect 
that we treat all the, all the rest of our stories. At least to do it for this one day. And um, and the best spook story starts like, look, you know, I, I didn't, I don't even want to tell you this. I don't think he was going to believe me. But and as soon as they say that, you know, we can lean in a little bit. You got to have the storyteller be someone whom you trust. You can't believe that they're trying to pull the wool over on your eyes. I need that. Look, I don't, I don't believe this myself, but I got to tell you what really happened to me. This is what happened to me. This is my story. I'm not, you know, I, I, um, and, and, and that, that, that beginning gives a type of authenticity to the storyteller. Um, and that's why oftentimes, you know, we, we really like people who, Maybe they don't have the book to sell, or they not they're not a paranormal investigator or something like that. They you know they are a cook or a, or a, a builder or whatever it is they do, and they stumbled upon something that changed them. Um, those are you know those are the best stories for us. And um, again, what makes a good story? That hook, then the beginning. This is make sure you're laying down the gauntlet hard early, so that people know they. There are two things. They, they're hearing something from a speaker who they find compelling, and they're hearing a lure to listen to what else they've got to say. That first setup, um, you know, what is the story? Why am I listening to this story? I think um, so many people would benefit from continually asking themselves in the edit process, why would someone listen? For us, then too, we want to. We want some twists. We want some turns. At the end of the day, no one's going to listen to Snap unless they're entertained in some way. And that's not to say that we don't have points to make. That there is not a broader mission and all that other kind of stuff, all that public radio stuff that you might hear. But we got to entertain, and that's that's got. It's got to be. It's got to flow. It's got to go. It's got to move. It's got to take you places. It's got to have scenes, and it's got to have a surprise. I didn't see that coming. I didn't expect that thing to end. And and finally, finally this, at least for our purposes, this is really extremely important. When we're telling a story on Snap Judgment, um, the typical public radio sort of pattern is for there to be a story, a little uh, explanation, a little story, a little explanation, a little story, explanation, and someone put wraps it up in a public radio bow. This ending of a story, how you end a story is so important. Um, and it works like this. The, if I tell every person, every person listening right now even, they are a meaning machine. By, by meaning, I mean like you're wondering, what does it mean? What does it mean? What does it mean? What does it mean? That's the way our brains work. What's it mean? What's it mean? What's it mean? What's it mean? The minute I tell you what a story means, your brain stops. Okay, got it. What you never want to do, at least for our purposes at the end of a story, is tell someone what the story means. I don't put that public radio bow on it. I don't tell anyone what the story means. I end on an action and then someone does doing something. Because then, now, your brain the way it, the brain works, it just keeps saying, what's it mean? What's it mean? What's it mean? Now it's your story. 
Now you're thinking about it. Now you have a vicarious experience with that. Your brain doesn't just stop. Now it's a story that you tell your mother, you tell your girlfriend, you tell your, your significant other, you tell your, 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 um, your uncle. It becomes your story because I don't tell you what that means. And it never, the story, and essentially your brain can't get it out. Can't, 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 uh, can't stop it like that. And, and it, and it becomes a vicarious experience. And, it, and that's what we want most of all is a story to be lived vicariously. Yeah, I appreciate your approach to that because, you know, as I think about the podcasts of yours that I've listened to, um, my approach to them is that they really make me think. So, for example, listening to the Heaven's Gate podcast, uh, it would have been very easy to approach that as, hey, here's a bunch of weirdos who did a weird thing that resulted in, you know, this tragedy. But as you go through the story, you know, you, you're, you're talking with some of the parents and the pain and the tragedy that they felt. And you have interviews with the members and you can feel, you know, what they were experiencing as part of the cult that they were in. And there, I think there was even an episode where the leader of the cult starts to have second thoughts as she's going through some, you know, health crises. And, uh, we, we, learn how the members kind of buoy her up in her own beliefs, right? And 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 bring her to that. So I really appreciate that approach because the way you tell stories, yeah, it, I, I don't know if it necessarily changes me, but it certainly makes me think about the ideas that you're sharing and maybe helps me change the way I think then about other things. You know, and that's just it. You know, at the end of the day, what do you, we just want you to Here's a different perspective. Here's a life that lived in a different way. Does it have any resonance or impact for your own world? Um, can you see things differently? You know, I've never been, I had a heteronormative upbringing, but when a kid tells me a story about his two moms fighting in the front seat of a car and wondering where they're going, I know what it's like to be in the backseat of a car when there is a tension between my the two parents that I love. I know what that's like. And I can relate because of that to this other person's experience. And I can feel and experience things through his eyes because I have a little bit of a of a touchstone to to uh, relate to. And that's you know, that's that's really what's important to us. All right. I'd love to talk more about Spooked. Um, so you mentioned Spooked kind of came out of Halloween and grew from there. Um, how has it transformed? Did you know that you were going to launch these multiple seasons? And why is this show really important to you? Well, the show is, um, it's one of those things where where the, the idea here is, look, um, can you have two completely disparate ideas in your head at the same time. Number one, here is a rational person. And I present and the person presented rationally. And this rational person is telling you a story of that rational person's supernatural experience. Now, you maybe you believe in the supernatural, maybe you don't, but you don't believe this person's lying. So this 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 person telling what happened to them, and it's incredible, and I'm going to blend these. I have to have both of these ideas in my head at the same time, and it makes us question our own, you know, map of reality. Is the, is the map that we've built all there is? Are there other ways of seeing the world 
and our place in it that are different. And, you know, our, these are, when I say spook, the, sto- the stories are generally, we're not doing gory people running through the place with you know, um, axe murderer stuff. The stories are really about people and their own monsters. What are you afraid of? What is what lies beyond that dark path? Who do you what what I mean, and the biggest question, of course, is the mystery of who we are in the first place. Um you know, what what lies over yonder shore? That that idea, like can you what happens when we're gone? Are we does is there a shadow of us left here? All these questions, these are the big questions, and some and 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 it's weird sometimes. I think that we, our society, uses ghost stories as a way to to talk about these things. But I think it's cool in a lot of ways too. I, I um I'm an amateur magician, and you know I can make a coin disappear. I can make. Uh, uh, you know, a, a few different uh, uh, tricks happen around people. And it's amazing to me how often just a, a little bit of a simple sleight of hand makes people talk about the supernatural and the and, and the bigger questions of their lives. Where is my, I, I spoke to my grandmother. Um, in a dream. I wonder if I was really speaking to her. I wonder if turning left instead of right and missing that car accident was a sign. Um, that all those things emerge sometimes from doing pulling a coin out of someone's behind someone's ear. And I I I I think that's there's there's a there's just something interesting about that. And we love to play with it on Spooked. Yeah, I've used these stories to talk with my seven-year-old and even my four-year-old, although sometimes sometimes it's too much for him. Um, but my seven-year-old loves the show too. So we've used it to talk about what happens after we die and to talk about a lot of uncomfortable topics that we may not have talked about otherwise. But because we're both hearing the same stories, we're able to to explore different places that we wouldn't normally explore. I'm I'm so thrilled that the, I, nothing I love better than a little snap. <laughs> um, yeah, no, my daughter thought it was really cool that I'm talking to you today. <laughs> so, uh, is it also is the show also a warning? I feel like you know I started listening because the stories are compelling. It's so well produced. I love hearing about supernatural anything. But then as I listen to more, it starts to feel like from you. It's a warning to people to not mess around with the supernatural. And as someone who, you know, can become obsessive with supernatural, it's helped me learn that I need to stay away. Like this is some serious stuff. Just back up a little bit. Is that something that has just happened organically or was that intentional by you to really kind of warn people about <laughs> this type of stuff? I'm sure there's a little bit of intentionality in it, a little bit of um my own background coming through. This was, I was always warned as a child myself, this, these are not forces to play with. These are not forces to toy with. And I also saw firsthand what happened to people who obsessed over these issues. It never had a good outcome. The answers you got were often never the answers you sought. 
And I wonder, and I don't know, and I think I say this a lot too, this is a journey that we're taking together. I don't have any answers on this thing. I really, I truly do not. Um, I think because of the way that I came up, I got to experience firsthand some people's struggles and explorations of these matters. Um, and, um, you know, like I said, I grew, I grew up besides them um, in, in, a, in, a, in a world where demons were real, witches were real, healings were real. Um, speaking in either the tongue of the devil or of the uh, angelic choir, that was real. And I say all that because, believe it or not, you don't have to believe any of that stuff to know that that had real impact on real communities and real lives. People would make their life choices based upon what happened from a what they thought a witch told them. Or what they thought, um, you know, uh, choosing to go to have um, life-saving surgery or stay home and have a preacher come over and do a healing on someone. These are real real people make real life and death decisions based upon their understanding of supernatural forces. And as such... Um, believe it or not, you have to take it seriously. Is there a, an episode or a story, or maybe it's even a, a couple of episodes, where after you finished it, you put it up, you know, to be consumed, where you thought this is the this is the story that I was meant to tell. You know, this is why I do the thing that I do. <laughs> Every story I tell, <clears throat> it's always a story I'm working on at the time. Um, the um. I, on this note, I told a story early on about um, um, well witching that I thought got at a lot of the issues that we're talking about now. And it was one of those stories that I always did want to tell. Stories um, I'm happy I got to tell. Last night, and this is just as rare, um, I don't know what they were doing at my son's school. But he asked me if I have ever told a story about colorism. And I was like, what? what's colorism? He's like, well, you know, um, in, the, in that um, in America, there's this, we have a white supremacy strain, but that strain also applies to the black community itself in that um, certain members of the African-American community would discriminate against those darker as opposed to those who are lighter. And do you, did you ever tell any stories about that? And I thought, well, you know, I did tell a story about that and I got to tell any, and it's a story I had never told him. And it's a story about me growing up in Detroit and wandering into a store and seeing something called skin lightning cream. And and because I was so jealous of my light-skinned cousin, who was always pretty boy Verge. He was always, you know, he was the favorite child. Oh, he's so good looking. Oh, he's so this, he's so that. 
that I was jealous of his complexion, that I, and I saw this thing, skin lightning cream, I took it. As a little kid, I went home and tried to put this crazy acid on my face so that I would be more appealing. And I, and I, when I think about that story, I think about how crazy it is that it's not just white folks that believe the lie of white superiority in America. It's infected the black community as well. And how do you, and, and, and so that an eight-year-old boy would sneak into a bathroom to try and put acid on his face to lighten his, his skin color. Um, I think when you, uh, that's a story that I think that America needs to hear about itself. Um, and I think that I, you know, there's just so like, a, um, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot, I, I get, I, I feel like in a lot of ways that my own childhood was a bit of a lucid dream. Um, and I'm still mining all that stuff that happened, the good and the bad, um, for stories. And I, I, you know, like, like I, I, it sounds stupid, but the truth of the matter is, it's like, what do you, what's your favorite story is the story I'm working on right now. Yeah. And I, I love that looking back at your childhood, like a lucid dream, because you share, you share those stories from your childhood and on the farm and with your family, and in your podcast episodes at the beginning. And I always love hearing those stories from you before you lead into the stories by the other people, you know, sharing ghost stories. So I feel like we get to see those pieces of this lucid dream too. These stories. Um, I, I feel fortunate. I think that um, coming out of that, sometimes some really hard times, really crazy times, really difficult times. Um, I, to, I, I guess, um, I processed the world in narrative and I, 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 I get a lot out of personally of, of, of turning some of this stuff into story. Yeah. I, I'd love to keep going on you know, just talking about stories and, and the richness of the stories that you tell. But I also want to talk maybe a little bit about the craft of podcasting as well. And as somebody who's been doing it for so long and been doing it at such a high level, I'm sure that you consume a lot of podcasts. What what things should we be doing as podcasters a little differently in order to connect with our audiences better? Are there mistakes that you see, you know, across the wide range of podcasts that you listen to or are exposed to and think, oh, we should be doing less of that or we should be doing more of something else? I think we should be do, doing a lot more experimentation, a lot more. I think I, I just don't, I don't know that. um I, I, we have a different business model than a lot of things. I wish at Snap Judgment, we you know, the first show had been me and Mark sitting around talking about sports. That would be great. It would be a lot easier to make that podcast. Um, but I think that what I would like to see is more people taking very, very seriously the the um, the intensity of, of what we're doing here. It is such an amazing thing. 
this whole advent of podcast nation, when someone puts their earbuds in or their headphones on, you get to go into a different world at that point. And taking that opportunity seriously from an acoustic uh, narrative standpoint, from a personal standpoint, this is a, it's, it's this, this type of storytelling is, um, it's so intimate. Um, this connection, this, this form, this format itself is so intimate. And I would like to see more experimentation with that intimacy. Uh, one of my favorite shows I've heard recently is called Have You Heard George's Podcast by a guy, George the Poet, out of, um, out of London. And I love how he plays with this, how he plays with that intimacy in his show. I, I just, I just, I, I can't get enough of it right now. Um, and I, I don't want, I, I just think that, that we're just in the first inning of how people are using this format. And I just, I just can't, I, I think we should start really trying to swing for the fences and try to hit some home runs and with different narrative styles um, and not just try you know, to have a rehash of some of the things that have already been done. Um, the original, I think just the originality born out of people's own personal experience is going to be what drives podcasting. Do you have any other specific examples of how we can experiment or what else you've seen to really push that intimacy level? Other ways we can think about it. Well, um, I think that I just said a lot of people want to be Ira Glass. A lot of people want to be, um, you know, other, they want to sound like other people. And um, I think that there's, there's something about just the way that people respond to um, authenticity that is um, really compelling. I think that what people want to do, I mean, I think it's great to start by emulating whom you admire. I think it's a really useful tool for finding out who you are. But once, I mean, it's a tool for, it's a tool for exactly that, finding out who you are. Um, and I think one of the best ways to do this, you know, people say, how do you, what should I do as a podcaster? What, how should I make this? And I think the best way to do it, it's to understand it is as a discipline and a discipline you're going to commit to whatever production schedule you commit to, you're going to hit it come hell or high water. You're going to hit that production schedule. And what it does is make you understand that, um, there is no perfect that you can't wait for the perfect thing, per- show. You're not going to ever create the perfect show. You're going to get finished even though you're not done. And making having the discipline to put those shows out, to to do what you've done, do the best you can, but know that this has got to, this has got to, um, I got to hit send on this. That's the, that's the biggest, um, if I can say nothing else to someone who's starting out in podcasting, I would say, get that schedule down and hit that schedule come hell or high water. Um, listen to everything. And obviously um, this, I think is uh, as some aspects of this, you've seen the people are making, this is an art. 
This is an art that just got a brand new palette. And just like any other art, you draw from other disciplines. I mean, especially like how do you incorporate music and sound and timing and poetry and and um, visual art? How do you translate that into um, sound waves? Um, how do you, you know the 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 I think some of the more powerful um, podcasts that are coming out right now are people who are take who who can actually act and and um, they. You see that craft displayed through this medium. I think it's. I just think it's wonderful to see people bringing their their experience, their background, their art, their energy, their joy, and saying, "I can do that. I can take this and put it into podcasting. Bring it." I sort of said, "Bring it all that to to this thing because um, we need it." And the and the next big wave is going to come from people who are who are taking chances and, and and bringing other mediums to podcasting. Yeah, if it wasn't for Rob, we would never hit our weekly schedule. <laughs> so, thank you, Rob. I would never be able to do it. Um, so a lot of copywriters in our community have started podcasts, um, you know, more as a marketing engine and to help them get clients, but for copywriters or business owners who really are just passionate about the craft of podcasting and want that to be their business, their career, their focus, um, and ultimately provide some type of pay so they can continue to do it. What It seems so daunting, but clearly it's possible. So what advice would you give to those people? Let me tell you a story. Um, back in the day, back, uh, you know, this is 10 years ago, um, when I was fir- when I first discovered something called podcasting, I was listening to a guy who tells uh, science fiction stories. He was Scott Sigler, and the science fiction community was one of the first communities to actually embrace podcasting, probably because we're into tech a little bit more than maybe the other communities might be. But um, Scott Sigler, and he was got a super prolific short story writer, and he had his own podcast, and he would also though. Uh, at a request, at a uh, at a at the at the whiff of a request, he would go and share a story with someone else's podcast, or be on their show, or talk about storytelling, or do anything. And this is the guy who you know no one had ever really heard of outside the podcasting community. He 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 was really prolific, but on a, in an audio sense, and he would just be on anyone's show. And because a lot of people are trying to fill content. Um, he, they put him on a lot of different things and he, he really garnered a lot of favors. Right. And then he decides he's going to take one of his stories and go and try to make a self-published book out of it. And, you know, okay, he's going to do it. And I, I believe it was like on a, it was on a Sunday that he was like, please buy it on this day. Please buy my book on this day. Please buy it on this day. And he got through enough shows and, and people owed him favors and stuff like that. And everyone said it on their various podcasts. Buy it on this day. It was Sunday Buddy Sunday, they called it. And then all of a sudden, this book that no one had ever heard of in New York or whatever was like the number one um, Amazon or New York Times seller all of a sudden out of nowhere. And that the power of the podcast, I don't think people even understood it at the time. He just went from a, some a, a non a, a person who didn't have a deal anywhere or anything like that to having a number one book on the on the um, on these various charts, 
And he did it by going to other people's podcasts, by giving them something that they wanted. Like they needed a guest, he was going to give them guests. They needed a story, he gave them a story. What I would suggest is like a lot of the pot, whatever genre you're into, whatever thing that you do, I'll bet that the person who is putting out the, the number one podcast in that um, genre is scrambling. Can you make something for them? Can you give them a gift so that they don't have to do something? If someone like uh, 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 gives me a story that I know is super well produced in a snap judgment style that might not be exactly what I would do, but it's an amazing, compelling piece of work that's got a twist that they know what I, I like to some extent from listening to the show, but they've taken their own twist on it and said, here, um, here's a story. What do you think? Will you put that on snap judgment? And let your audience listen to it. <laughs> Hell yeah. Especially right now. I like like everybody else. I can want to go home for the holidays. If someone just saved me, um, you know, a 20-minute, gave me a 20-minute gift of a story that worked for our show, I couldn't wait to put it on. I couldn't, I would run top speed to stick it on the show. And I think that that's, I mean, the podcast community is such that. Even now, there's no, you can still talk to just about everybody. Everyone is still pretty much accessible um, within this community, and people want to help each other. Um, and, and if you give someone the, I mean, like the, the compliment of, of uh, saying, I really like your show and I made something that you might like, what do you think about playing it? Even if they don't play it, you still have gone through the process of making that piece. And that, that is a that's a that's a benefit in and of itself, and you know you want and, and try if at first you don't succeed try try again. We this is this space we have if one thing this space need needs all the time it's more content, and so doing that over and over again that's how that and I'll say this for ourselves myself um, a little while um, when we were first starting out the show, I um I told a story about Superman. Um, It was a villain story. And uh, Ira Glass heard it. So he he had a hole to fill, put it on This American Life. You know, that was huge for us. And that, you know, that changed the trajectory of how people, you know, viewed the show. And we, we, we would do the exact same thing. Yeah, so there's a, a career goal for us, Kira. Come up with a story good enough to be on <laughs> one of... Uh, this is my goal right. for 2020. Right. So, Glenn, I have a final question for you. Um, your your bio uh, describes you as a fish shaker, a mountain hollerer, and a foot stomper. Uh, I love that description. I, I wonder what you mean by that and maybe advice for those of us who'd like to do a little bit more fish shaking, foot stomping, and hollering at mountains. Um. <laughs> What do I mean by that? I just I'm 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 having some fun when I say that, but the, I came from an activist background. Um, I you know I I came from a uh, my previous jobs were trying to um, make sure that we could build a homeless shelter, a battered women's facility, um, take care of our kids, um, uh, get more money for the schools. That's really you know kind of where. That whole social justice thing um, is where I can. I mean, I know it's become a bad, a bad term as of late. But I was a community organizer, and um, and 
I have a legal background as well. And so um, I, I think a lot of the, the energy that's necessary for community organizing is certainly, I hope, um, visible in the types of stories that we tell on Snap Judgment. My last question. I know you said you don't have a favorite story, but if we're thinking about ghost stories on Spooked, is there one that terrified you more than any of the rest? Um, I'm forgetting what we call the story. Um, this is what's this is what's this is great for me. There's a story we did, um, and it was about a mural, a woman you walk into this bar, this bar, this, this bar. Oh, that one's that's the one that I like my hair stood up on my that was freaky. Right, right? <laughs> this one this bar and like the the mural itself starts sort of mirroring the people that are there and so what the hell's going on? This is and that. And then when she come tries to come back to the to find the bar, well that bar's been closed for twenty years, whatever it is like that. I love this story. I loved it. And then um what was great was um people this uh, the, the bar, I believe, the story was told about a bar in Wisconsin. People found the bar and found the mural, and were sending us pictures of them in front of this mural, and which I just loved. I just I love it when because you know um, we do fact check the stories to some extent. We want the place to be there. We want the person to, to not be a crazy person. We want you know the, the what we can't. Obviously, I'm not gonna necessarily see the supernatural thing, but I want the I want to know that the person is telling a story that is true to their own situation. And I love that people found that mural and and essentially verified to some extent what the the story that the woman had told us. Yeah, that was a good example of a story that seemed so hard to believe yet the storyteller had such a credible voice. She's so believable as she told that story. You're like, how could this not be true? Uh, that's definitely one of my, definitely one of my favorites too. So, um, Glenn, where can our listeners find you? Where should they connect with you? Um, what are some of the spots they should go to online? Well, you can find the world of Snap Judgment at snapjudgment.org. We also have um, the uh, Spook Podcast um, for the for the spooky stories, Heaven's Gate. Um, just you can type those all that stuff into Google and you'll see our stuff. Um, Snap Judgment the show comes out once a week. It's on public radio stations around the country and on the podcast, of course. And and next year we go um, 2020. We're going to be launching a, a raft of new programming. You're gonna it's gonna blow your mind. I can't wait for people to hear it. We're really excited here at Snap. Well, no, I'm excited to hear it. Can't wait to can't wait to hear all of the new stuff because the uh, the older stuff is just so compelling and so much fun to listen to. So yeah, thank you so much. Thank you, Glenn. It's been an honor and such a treat to have you here. We appreciate it. Thank you all. We appreciate it. You've been listening to the Copywriter Club podcast with Kira Hug and Rob Marsh. Music for the show is a clip from Gravity by Whitest Boy Alive, available in iTunes. If you like what you've heard, you can help us spread the word by subscribing in iTunes and by leaving a review. For show notes, a full transcript, and links to our free Facebook community, visit thecopywriterclub.com. We'll see you next episode. Mm-hmm.